Good morning. My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, Yesterday, my sweet son, uh, Jude Parker, turned one month old, so we've kept him alive for a month. Yay! Yes! Yes, one month down the rest of my daggum life to go. So, um, he's doing great. Thank you guys for your prayers, your emails, your text messages, the meals, um, all the ways in which you've been loving and supporting our family. Reagan and Jude are doing awesome, and uh, we just could not be more happy to be part of a community that makes sure that we know that we're loved. Um, So thank you. Thank you for that. We are continuing in a sermon series this morning called I Wonder, and we've been looking at some really easy questions. Now, uh, little things like, why do bad things happen to good people, and, uh, it, you know, what's the, pro- you know, the problem of evil, and uh, this week, what is God's will for my life, right? Simple questions like that. Uh, no, these are, these are the big ones. These are the heavy hitters. These are the questions that we come back to time and time again, the questions that can even keep us up at night, the questions that can even drive us away from our faith if we don't find satisfactory answers. Um, and, and so in this sermon series, our goal is not to give you necessarily the be-all, end-all answers, but instead to invite us into this conversation to realize that these are questions we are going to carry with us for the rest of our lives. And, and even when we find answers that satisfy us in the moment, invariably life will bring us to a place where we ask the question again. And so, if nothing else, I hope that we can just become comfortable with difficult questions, right? I hope that's one thing that we learn in this series, that it is okay to ask questions that get to the heart of your faith. Because quite honestly, if your faith can't handle those kinds of questions, then it needs to be torn down and rebuilt most likely, right? And so, uh, today we're going to talk about what is God's will for my life. And I'm going to tell you exactly, no, I'm kidding. I don't know what God's will is for your life. Like, let's get that out in the open right now. I struggled with our scripture this, that we're going to read this morning. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's a verse that many of us will be familiar with. It's where Paul says, don't be conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I'm sitting and I'm thinking and praying on this scripture. I'm going, how in the world am I supposed to tell a room of a whole bunch of different people what God's will is for their lives? And, and then I realized that, that Paul doesn't try to give a clear, easy answer to the question either in this text. And instead, he gives us some, some clues, some maybe... Uh, Uh, words or themes that will lead us to more questions that can help each of us find our answer to that really big question. Because uh, to spoil the ending, I don't know what God's will is for your life. I can't know that, right? If I told you I knew that, then, then you should just leave this church because there's no way for me to understand what God's will is for your life. But I do think I have an idea of the types of things that let us know what God's will is for our lives, the, the kinds of questions that we can ask that help us to discern that for ourselves as we walk with God. So I hope that you didn't come this morning expecting me to tell you what God's will is for your life because I just don't know that. You're going to have to go home and, I don't know, be in relationship with Jesus, right? Um, so we are going to look at Romans 12 this morning. Verses 1 and 2. This is a, a, a set of scriptures that uh, if you've come to church for any length of time, I imagine you've heard this before. But I want us this morning to focus on three words in this passage that I don't know get as much airtime as some of the more famous parts of it. And so I'll explain more on that in a second. Before we read, let's pray. Uh, during this series, your preachers need your prayers because <laughs> uh, these are big, big questions that um, I know uh, deserve um, really good, well-thought-out answers, and um, I hope that God can lead us all this morning. So let's pray for our scripture this morning. Gracious God, we give you thanks 
for being a God that's in relationship with us. We give you thanks for not always giving our questions an answer, but maybe a follow-up question and inviting us to be in conversation. God, we give you thanks for a faith that doesn't buckle under the pressure of real life. We give you thanks for a faith that can be tested, a faith that can be torn down and built back up, a faith that can die and be resurrected, a, a faith that is real and transformative. And so, God, we come this morning, let us bring not just ourselves and not just our praises, but also our questions and even our doubts. Because we know that you are big enough to handle us, all of us, the real us, the parts of us that aren't certain, the parts of us that are unfinished, the parts of us that are wondering. God, through your servant Paul, through his life and testimony and words this morning, would you speak to us in a new way that we could hear you, that these words would leap off of the screens and off the pages of our Bibles and into our hearts so that they will change the way that we live. All this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. So you'll see these words on, on your screens. It says, Paul says this to the church in Rome. So brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly service. So he's, he's just referencing there this idea of sacrifice that was so big in the Jewish tradition from which Paul comes from, right? And so he's leveraging that imagery that, that no longer are you presenting God other sacrifices. You yourself are the sacrifice. That's your job as the priest, not to go and get a goat, but to bring God yourself, right? He says, uh, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed, by the renewing of your minds, so that you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. So we tend to focus here on, and it's beautiful language, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Those are the words that get the most airplay. Those are the words that get printed in the nice calligraphy on the wall hanging, right? Those are the words that we put on our mission trip t-shirts, right? Those are the words that we tend to focus on. But I want us to look at three different words this morning. It's these words that come at the end, because as I was wrestling with this and going, how do I interpret this into what God's will is for our lives? I realized Paul's not trying to tell me what God's will is for my life. Paul's not pretending to know that. He's not pretending to know that for the church in Rome. He's telling them, you're going to have to do this hard work yourself. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can figure out what God's will is. But he gives them three clues. I want to say these are almost like three little orienting um, pillars or, or lights or, or beacons that they can look for as to when they know they're figuring out God's will. He says what is good and what is pleasing and what is mature. What is good and what is pleasing and what is mature. And these are words, I, when I read the Bible, there's so many times that I, I'll see words that we kind of gloss over, and I'm guilty of this too. I've read this passage so many times, and never have I really thought to myself, well, what is good and pleasing and mature? They just kind of roll off the tongue. They sound like nice churchy Bible words, right? Uh, and, but I think that Paul is an extremely gifted and intellectual theologian, and he doesn't put words down lightly. When he chooses words, he chooses them for a reason. So this week I thought, okay, what does Paul mean when he says good and pleasing and mature? Why these 
three words. Why good and pleasing and mature? So we're going to look at these three words this, this week, this morning. Um, because I think these three words for Paul come out of a, a deep and personal story for him. So often we read the words in Scripture and we forget that there is a person holding the pen. Right? And yes, God is guiding their movements and God is guiding their heart, but there is a human being who has a story to tell that is writing these words. And I think these three words are personal for Paul. And I think that he's offering them a testimony of, of the way in which he has seen God's will at work in his life. And now he has come to understand God's will in his life, and he's offering this to the church in Rome. So let's break down one by one each of these words. First, the word good. In Greek, this is the, the word is agathon. Agathon. It's the most general way to say good that you can in Greek. Now, now if, if we study the Bible for any length of time, we know that Greek is a much more nuanced language than English. When we have the word good, Greek can have like 80 different words for like that one word good, and it can mean so many different things. Same thing with love, right? It can get very specific. But the word agathon is really the most broad-speaking terms of the word good that we can find. It's, it, it's used countless times in the Old and New, in the New Testament, um, and the interesting thing about this word is that it's not a goodness uh, that is simply uh, good on the superficial level. It's like a goodness that runs deep, and it's like an intrinsic goodness, and, and when we see it used in Scripture in the Gospels, uh, Jesus uses this goodness almost always to describe the person and character and work and acts of, of God. So when someone calls Jesus good and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for the Father. That word good is agathon. It's the same word that Paul uses here. It's this deep intrinsic goodness that in, in Paul's tradition and in the, the tradition of the Gospels is a goodness that's really assigned to the deep and intrinsic goodness of God. There's a connection there. And I started thinking about Paul and his story. I started thinking about what it meant for Paul to say that God's will is good. It is deep and it is intrinsic and it is ultimately connected to the character of God. And I began to think about the very beginning of Paul's story that we see in the book of Acts, beginning in chapter 9. We're introduced to uh, Paul as, as a Pharisee and an overly zealous Pharisee at that. He is uh, known as someone who hunts down and imprisons and even tortures and executes Christians. And he's on his way in chapter 9 of the book of Acts uh, to Damascus. It's a town in modern-day uh, Syria. And he's being sent there by the powers that be in Jerusalem with the letter that gives him the power uh, to stop and detain any followers of Jesus that he meets. And he's on a mission, and he is going to try to, to capture and bring back to Jerusalem as many Christians as he can. And his life is transformed. Let's, let's see this together. So it says, meanwhile, and at this point his name is Saul. Uh, meanwhile, Saul was still spewing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, seeking letters to the synagogues in Damascus. If he found persons who belonged to the way, meaning the Christian movement, whether men or women, these letters would authorize him to take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. During the journey, as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven encircled him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? And Saul asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord responded, I am Jesus, whom you are harassing, came the reply. 
Now get up and enter the city. You will be told what you must do. Those traveling with him stood there speechless. They heard the voice but saw no one. After they picked Saul up from the ground, he opened his eyes, but he couldn't see. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and neither ate or drank anything. So this is the story of when Saul, soon to be Paul, encounters the living spirit of Jesus, the living spirit of God on this road to Damascus. On his way to do evil things in the name of God, he's met by, by Jesus who says, why are you harassing me? And he goes through this ex, you know, incredible experience of being blinded for three days, right, an important number. He's going through his own death and resurrection experience uh, through meeting Jesus, and he exits this experience transformed and he will become the servant Paul, one of the most important leaders of the early Christian church. And when I hear the word good that Paul says, God's will is good, I can't help but think maybe he was thinking about this transformative experience because when we understand the will of God, we can feel ourselves called to something new. We can feel ourselves pulled in this direction of what we feel like God is asking us to do. And when he's on the road to Damascus, Paul or Saul, who becomes Paul, understands that he's on this road, quite literally and figuratively, towards persecution and hatred and judgment and violence, and he finds himself called to something better and holier and good. He finds himself called to nothing less than to follow Jesus the Christ, like the people who he had been persecuting. He had been called away from things that were evil into something deep and intrinsically good. As good as it possibly could be because it was the spirit of the living God itself. What I want to say this morning to, to begin with is when I hear Paul saying, you know, the will of God is first good. I hear Paul telling me and, and telling us that God's will is rooted in a deep and intrinsic way in the love of Christ. The will of God is so deeply and wholly and fully good that to follow God's goodness is to follow the person of Jesus and to try to become more like Jesus. To, be, to stop being Saul, to become Paul. To stop ourselves on the road towards evil and sin and violence and hatred and to find ourselves on a path towards righteousness and goodness and holiness. God's will is rooted in the love of Christ. And so when Paul says that God's will is good, it makes me ask a question. Okay, if I'm trying to have my mind renewed, if I'm trying to figure out God's will in my life, then the first question I need to ask myself is, is this the decision I believe that Jesus would make? Am I following in the footsteps of Jesus? Is this the decision that I believe Jesus would make? This is my very uh, sophisticated pastoral way of trying not to say, what would Jesus do? But I mean, that's what I'm basically saying. Right? Not that creative. <laughs> and yeah, it's a cheesy little bracelet, but it's, it, it, it gets the point across, right? I think sometimes we, we overcomplicate things when we're trying to discern God's will, and when we really should just start with, is this reflective of what I believe Jesus would do in this scenario? Because Jesus is always going to call us to the, the, the option of love or the option of compassion or the option of justice or the option of mercy or what have you, right? So sometimes we can make it a lot simpler by simply saying, what do I feel like Jesus would do in this scenario? Is this the decision I believe that Jesus would make? 
So maybe that doesn't resolve your question, though. Maybe you say, Scott, there's a lot of things that Jesus might do uh, in this question I'm asking. Maybe that doesn't eliminate enough possibilities. And so then he goes on and he says, uh, the will of God is pleasing. Good, pleasing. Uh, the word he uses there in the Greek is, this is a little bit harder, you are, you are rest on. It's got a weird accent to it. You are rest on. Yeah, you are rest on. I practiced this, I promise. You are rest on. It's Greek to me. Okay. It's a bad joke. This is a word that means pleasing or acceptable or righteous, but specifically with the connotation that it's pleasing or acceptable to God. This is a word that's used uh, in the New Testament, usually when talking about a sacrifice that one is bringing before the Lord. And, And if you understand Jewish tradition at all, the sacrifice, first and foremost, had to be pleasing to God. If it wasn't a sacrifice that God would be satisfied with, then you weren't getting the atonement that you desired. You weren't receiving the grace and the blessing that you wanted. And so this word pleasing is not about pleasing us. It's not about human desire. This is about pleasing God, what is pleasing to the Lord. God's will is pleasing to God, right? Not to us. We, we need to take ourselves out of the center point here. So this, this made me think about uh, who Paul was as someone who preached the gospel and someone who, who instructed churches. You know, it's funny. We, we remember Paul today. When we read his letters, he comes across as very harsh sometimes. I think Paul gets a bad rap because uh, he can be very black and white. He can be very harsh. He can, he can hold people to a very high standard. But Paul was also the loudest and most convincing voice for inclusion in the early church. From day one, when he feels called by the Spirit of Jesus uh, to follow in the footsteps of Christ and to, and to begin to preach the gospel, he becomes a loud and resounding voice for including Gentiles exactly as they are in the life of the church. And this kind of gets lost, I think, on us sometimes because uh, we read his words and he can sound like a harsh person, but the reality is Paul was sold out to grace and God saying yes to everybody. In fact, his first sermon that he preaches in, in Acts 13, uh, he's invited to, they look around, there, there's this group of people that uh, have not heard the gospel yet, and there's a, a team of missionaries there, and Paul's one of them, and, and people are going, who's going to preach the sermon? Who's going to preach the sermon? And Paul says, I'll preach, right? Paul was uh, nothing if not confident, right? Uh, he says, I'll preach. And in his first sermon, he says these words. We'll see them on the screens. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, know this. Through Jesus, we proclaim forgiveness of sins to you. Through Jesus, we proclaim forgiveness of sins to you. From all those sins from which you couldn't be put in right relationship with God through Moses' law, his Jewish tradition, Moses' law, through Jesus, everyone who believes is put in right relationship with God. Now, that'll get an amen in our church today in 21st century Dallas because we've had 2,000 years of Christian theology that makes that sound really simple uh, and easy to understand. But let's keep in mind, Paul is preaching this in the very beginnings, the humble beginnings of the gospel being preached to people who've never heard it before. Coming out of a Jewish tradition that would not have agreed at the, in, in those days with what Paul just said. He said, through Jesus, everyone who believes can receive forgiveness. That is a powerful statement that we need not overlook. Paul was sold out. I, I, wanna, I, I, I like to believe that Paul knew what persecution and a judgmental eye felt like and looked like in his life. And when he followed Jesus, he wanted so far to run in the direction of grace that he was willing to say bold things like that that were going to get him in trouble. 
Because then we go on and we see in Acts 15, just two chapters later, he's at, a, he's at a church in Antioch and he's preaching the gospel. And then some people from Judea come down and they're not happy with what Paul's saying because they are in the camp that says, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to be a Jew. And to be a Jew means you have to be circumcised, right? That's a big, 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 big deal uh, for, the, for the traditional Jewish uh, followers. And so they're arguing with Paul, but Paul lays out this argument for including Gentiles and not requiring circumcision. This was the big issue back then, right? Um, uh, not, in, not worrying about circumcision. They're so taken by it, the Antioch churches, they say, we need to send you on the road. You need to go on a tour, right? This is a good talk. And so then they send him down to Jerusalem to talk to the council of Jerusalem. This is like the big uh, power... Uh, powers that be in the Christian movement. They say, you need to go on to the Council of Jerusalem. So he goes to the Council of Jerusalem. He says, hi, my name is Paul, and I don't think circumcision should be required. This is my TED Talk, right? And he does this whole presentation with slides and everything for him, right? No. But he, he does this, this um, presentation of the gospel and why circumcision shouldn't be required for all men entering into the faith of, of following Jesus. And then they argue, they debate, and out of the Council of Jerusalem, there's this agreement made that circumcision isn't necessarily required to be a Christian follower. Paul is the one that starts that conversation. Paul is the one that advocates so loudly and clearly that in, in uh, verse 12 of Acts 15, it says the entire assembly fell quiet as they listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God did among the Gentiles through their activity. The entire assembly fell quiet. I have been to an assembly of, of good Christian types, right? And there's one thing we love to do. It's fight and argue and talk real loud. If you can make the entire assembly fall quiet without the help of a microphone, you are saying something that people want to hear, right? And so Paul is this resounding force and voice for inclusion. He develops this theology in Romans, in the letter to the Romans that we read to start our message today. And later in that letter, in Romans 14, he, he says what I think really is his exclamation point and triple underlined statement when it comes to being non-judgmental in our faith. And when it comes to how we understand right relationship with God as Christians. He says this in Romans 14, beginning in verse 7. He says, we don't live for ourselves, we don't die for ourselves. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to God. This is why Christ died and lived. So that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you look down on your brother or sister? We will all stand in front of the judgment seat of God. We forget that Paul is an advocate for inclusion and an advocate for keeping your nose in your own daggum business, right? I like Paul. I like Paul because he's reminding me that God's will for me is maybe going to look different from God's will for you. I sure would like to have a one-size-fits-all God with a one-size-fits-all will so that everybody would have to live their life the way that I wanted to. That sure would be nice. Try to be a simpler life. You wouldn't drive the speed limit in the left-hand lane, which is for passing, if we lived by God's will according to me. That's not the way that Paul understands it. That's not the way that our scriptures preach it. I sense that when Paul was called on the road to Damascus to Jesus, not only was he called to follow in Jesus' goodness, but he was called from judgment towards a personal relationship with the living God. See, I think that Paul had a personal relationship with the law when he was persecuting and when he was attacking, 
I think he had a personal relationship with the rule book. I think he had a personal relationship with pulling out the set of scriptures that made him right and other people wrong. And I think we got a lot of Christians today that have a personal relationship with that same kind of stuff. But that's not the kind of relationship that Paul's preaching. When he met the spirit of the living God on the road to Damascus, he realized that ultimately the Christian faith is about being relationship with a personal God who knows us and loves us. And so, God's will may look different for different people. God's will may look different for different people. God may not ask you to do what God asked me to do, and that's okay. I'm okay with that most of the time. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes it's hard. It's hard to understand how God could lead us to be and to do different things. But we have a God who's big enough, who speaks to each of us as individual, uniquely created people. We have a God who may speak to us in different ways. As, as Paul reminds us, why do we judge our brother or sister? Why do we look down on our brother or sister? We will all stand in front of the judgment seat of God. And so the question I hear Paul telling me to ask myself, Scott, not only is God's will good, it's also pleasing. It is pleasing not to anybody else. It is pleasing not to you. It is pleasing to God. The question I hear Paul reminding me to ask myself is, do I feel like God is honored by this decision? Do I feel like God is honored in my decision? If I can say yes to that, whatever I'm looking at, whether that is whether or not to be circumcised, that's not really an issue in my life. Um, if, if it's in Romans 14, should I or should I not eat pork? What day should I worship God on the Sabbath? Or if there is something much more consequential that I am wrestling with in my life and a decision I feel like I need to make. It's really easy to ask myself what I think I should do. It's really easy to seek the approval of people around me. It's really easy to ask what everybody else thinks I should do. But if I haven't stopped and gone, what do I think God wants me to do? And do I feel like if I do that, that God and I are good? If I can say yes, then quite honestly, the rest of you can buzz off. Right? Like, I'm, I'm being honest. Like Paul's reminding us this is a personal relationship. If you can't say yes to is God honored by my decision, then number one, figure that out. But if you can say yes, then don't dare let anybody look down on you. Don't let anybody judge you. Don't let anybody try to tell you they've got God's will for you figured out better than you do. Because if you're in a relationship with the living God, what do they know? Right? Is God honored by my decision? Number three, Paul says that God's will is mature. Mature. This is the part I don't like. Right? I don't like being mature. Being mature stinks. Being an adult stinks. You know what being an adult is like? It's walking around your house and noticing all the cracks at the end of the summer because your foundation is shifting because somebody thought it was a good idea to build slab foundations on clay. Anyways, that's what being mature is. It's the worst. End of summer used to be fun. Now I'm just looking at cracks. No, so the word he uses there. Uh, the word for mature is this word, uh, teleon, teleon. It's a Greek word that means, uh, yeah, it means mature. A, a more robust definition might be full grown in your Christian character. You're like a fully realized, fully developed Christian character person, right? This is, this is in, in Methodist theology, we would call this Christian perfection, Right? When you are at that place where, where you are so in touch with God's will, when you are so in touch with God's grace, when you are so in touch with God's love that you have been perfected, as perfected as we can become in this life in the love of God. Right? So this is a really high bar. Right? None of us, very few of us are going to get there, but it's what we aim for. 
Because we know that one day we will be perfected in God's love, if not in this life, then in the next. So this reminded me of um, the character of Paul. Again, we forget this is a real person. You, you know, we remember Paul today because of his writings. Paul was a masterful writer, masterful theologian, one of the most brilliant people, I think, to ever walk the earth. The things that he was able to understand and articulate and connect the dots of Christian theology in those days, it's just incredible, an incredibly smart person. Um, But, you know, Paul wasn't necessarily, at least if we can take his own writings uh, seriously, wasn't necessarily the greatest preacher to ever live, even though I just referenced his first sermon, and he was a very good public speaker. But there were some really good preachers back then. Peter was one of them. He was known to be a really good preacher. And, in fact, in one of the uh, passages I'm going to read right now, he talks about super apostles, right? I'm, I'm assuming that's like televangelists back then, the super apostle, right? They got really good hair or something. I don't know. Um, but he says this in his letter to the second, in his second letter to the Corinthians uh, in chapters 10 and in chapter 11. He says this. He says, I don't want it to seem like I'm trying to intimidate you with my letters. I know what people, some people are saying. His letters are severe and powerful, but in person he's weak and his speech is worth nothing. Right? So he's a really good writer, but then he shows up and he's maybe not the best public speaker in the world, especially compared to some of the other people coming through town. He goes on to say in chapter 11, I don't consider myself a second rate in any way compared to the super apostles. No, 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 no. Paul was very confident, right? But even if I'm uneducated in public speaking, he says, I'm not uneducated in knowledge. So this is interesting. I, I, I was thinking about who Paul was, and, and I think that Paul was someone who was very clear about his, what were his gifts and what were not his gifts. I don't think Paul ever aspired to be remembered as the greatest preacher to roam the Mediterranean Paul was first and foremost someone who was passionate about teaching the gospel and teaching it, in his view, uh, correctly in a way that could be understood and and not um, corrupted by false prophets. He was very passionate about planting churches. He started so many Christian communities throughout the Mediterranean. He was very passionate about writing and, and about continuing to lead churches even when he wasn't physically present. He was a leader of leaders. And, you know, that last part is, is really his greatest lasting legacy because even today we are reading what, he's, what he has written and we're being instructed by his words of instruction from 2,000 years ago. Paul was a missionary whose legacy has been found in those pastoral letters that have guided us for millennia. Now, I, I've, so I appreciate that Paul was clear about who he is and who he isn't what he's called to be and what he's not called to be, what his gifts are and what they are not. Because I've, I've heard it said that, you know, this is a, a, a popular line for a lot of preachers, God doesn't call the equipped, but God equips the called, right? Have you heard that or something like that before? God doesn't call the equipped, but God equips the called. And, and while I think that is true, I think that it's also true that God gifts us in clear and unique and individual ways, and we would be wise, dare I say, mature, to follow God's leading in those gifts and those skills. You know, it, it makes me think tragically about American Idol, right? I know it's like, is it even on anymore? I'm getting old. I'm using references that are old now. But I remember watching American Idol in those first audition weeks, right? It was so mean, because what would they do? 
they would trot out some poor person that, that, that you know, was there to audition that, God bless them, they could not sing a single note on key, right? And I know a lot of times they were scripted, I get that. But sometimes I promise you they were not. These people legitimately believed that they were going to land a multi-million dollar music contract, right? And when they did terribly, and the judges are laughing at them, and the American culture is awful, and we'll do that sermon another day, why we love laughing at people embarrassing themselves, but... What would they always say? They'd say, you know, why are you here? <laughs> why do you think that you have a shot at being the American Idol? And what do they always say? Well, my mom says I'm a great singer, right? Or my friend says I sound beautiful. And they're like, honey, your mom is lying to you, right? It's, and, and it's funny, and it's also not, right? Because we can delude ourselves into thinking that God is calling us to do something when the mature, God's honest truth is you are not gifted for that calling, now, that may not be fun to hear, and I know this may be uncomfortable, and maybe you disagree with me, but I do believe that God equips the called. I don't believe that God calls the equipped, but I also know that God knows what he's working with, right? And I don't think that God leads us into self-delusion or dishonesty or deception. I think that the mature thing we can do in trying to discern God's will is to acknowledge where our gifts are and where they are not, and to trust that God is going to call us to use those, gr those great gifts to further God's kingdom. Because all of us in this room have incredible gifts. All of us are gifted in so many different ways that all of us are not, right? Reagan and I make a great team because I am gifted in ways that she is not, and she is gifted in many more ways that I am not, right? I think about Moses and Aaron from the Old Testament. This is a story that usually gets brought up when we talk about God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And they'll say, Moses was a stutterer, and still God used him. And I want to go, yes, and God did not make him a public speaker, right? Moses was a stutterer. He said, God, I don't think I can do this. I have a really heavy stutter. That makes me nervous. And so God didn't say, I don't care. Get out there and talk. He said, okay, I'll give you Aaron. And Aaron will stand beside you, and Aaron will be the public speaker, and you will be the leader. Because you're called to lead, and those are your gifts. And Aaron's called to speak, and those are his gifts. What's God's will in my life, Scott? I think that God's will is designed with the real you in mind. God knows you better than you even know yourself. And I believe that you have gifts that this kingdom desperately needs. You have skills that God's kingdom desperately needs needs. And maybe there's a part of you that has a dream or a fantasy of doing something else. Maybe I wish that I could be a rock star. Dee Dee has heard my voice. She would never tell me to audition for American Idol unless she just wanted to watch it happen, right? We have to be honest about who God has created us to be. And not in a way that, that feels demoralizing or depressing, but in a way that is uplifting to say, this is who I am and God needs the real me, the gifted me, to leverage these gifts to build God's kingdom. Because that is more important than whatever personal fantasy I may possess. So what are the ways in which God has gifted you and how can you in a mature way say, God, I know you see me, I know you see my real self, I know you see my gifts how can I leverage these things for the glory of your kingdom? That's a really mature approach to the, discerning the will of God. I hear Paul reminding me to ask myself, Scott, am I building the kingdom of God or my own fantasy? Because there can be a lot of dreams in my life that I think sound really cool, but if I get real honest with myself, I go, you know what? That is an awesome thing for somebody else to do. It really is. 
that's not me. If I'm being honest about who God has made me to be and what God's kingdom needs from me, I don't think that's me. I think that's somebody else. That's Paul saying, you know what? I'm so glad that Peter is a phenomenal preacher. I don't have to be that. I'm going to get busy writing letters. 2,000 years, a day, 2000 years later today, we're still reading letters, right? The kingdom of God needs you, but it needs the real you. And God sees the real you. And so when you're talking to God about God's will, ask yourself, am I interested in building the kingdom of God or am I really interested in building my own fantasy? So we have three really helpful questions, I hope, as we leave today. I don't know the answer for you. I don't know what God's will is for your life. But I do think that the Apostle Paul, out of his own life experience, out of his own personal testimony, uh, can lead us to ask the questions that will help get us to the answers that we need. Number one, is this a decision that I think Jesus would make? That's a really easy way to weed out the bad ones. Number two, is this a decision I think God would be honored by? If I do this, are me and God good? If the answer is yes, then keep on trucking. And number three, if I'm being honest, am I doing what I want for my own reasons or because I believe they honestly build the kingdom of God? I think those are three questions that in my own life have proven to be helpful. I think they can be helpful for all of us as well. I hope this morning's been helpful for you. And I hope never to see, I hope you never see me on American Idol. Um, let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this morning. God, I want to thank you for the way in which you have uniquely created every single individual in this room. I want to thank you for the way in which you continue to refine and shape and mold us. Ways in which you lead us and guide us and direct us. When we cry out for you, we can trust that you truly are there. And when we're in a season of confusion, we can, we can ask for you to help us to discern your will. But God, this takes time. And we might not get the answer that we want. But if we stop and consider what is good, what is something that I know my Savior would do? What is pleasing? What is the thing that I can do that will most honor you? And lastly, God, what is mature? What is the response or the decision that I can make that isn't about me or my dreams and aspirations, but is about you and your dreams and aspirations for me and for our world and for eternity? God, we thank you for being on this journey with us when we meet you on roads and you call us into a new and resurrected life. All this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus the Christ. Amen.